This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. This week WMFE marks 10 years since Trayvon Martin was killed by a neighbourhood watch volunteer while walking home to his father's house in Sanford. The teenager's death sparked protests and drew attention to the city of Sanford, in particular its police department, as calls mounted for the killer to be arrested. Even though George Zimmerman was questioned by police the night of the killing, he was released later that night and he was not charged until weeks later. I met with the Sanford City Manager, the Community Relations and Neighbourhood Engagement Director and the Police Chief to ask what's changed in the relationship between the police and the city's black residents since then. Well, Norton Bonaparte is the Sanford City Manager. Uh, Norton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Also joined by Cecil Smith. He is the Chief of Police in the City of Sanford. Cecil, thank you as well. Thank you. And Andrew Thomas, the Community Relations and Neighbourhood Engagement Director. Thank you as well, Andrew. You're welcome. Thank you. Norton, I want to start with you. Uh, what stands out in your memory from the time between Trayvon Martin's shooting and the, the arrest of George Zimmerman? There was a lot of misunderstanding by the public, and unfortunately some of it was from the media. But the police department did what they could do. It was the state prosecutor that did not test the charges. But in terms of Mr. Zimmerman, he was incarcerated. I mean, he was taken into custody by the police, and I think the public didn't think that. What I heard is the people were upset because they felt he hadn't been arrested. In fact, he had been arrested. He did not spend the night in jail, but he was arrested. And I also think that part of the public misunderstanding were some of the photos that they saw of Trayvon when he was portrayed as somebody more like a 12 or 13 year old when in fact the more recent photos did show him and I got a lot of people telling me that how could the police department possibly believe that George Zimmerman was fearful for his life when in fact it was just a young child and it was not the case the photos were misleading in terms of what Trayvon actually looked like it was a tragedy that happened you know we all wish it had not have happened um, it was very regretful that uh, lo- loss of life that Trayvon uh, lost his life because of the situation so the Trayvon Martin case happened not long after the police department had appointed a new chief Bill Lee and and that chief had a mandate to restore the confidence of the community in the police and after Bill Lee was let go you said the next chief would have to build trust with the community. Ten years on, or nine years on, I guess, from hiring the next chief, uh, Chief Smith, what would you say about the level of trust uh, in the Sanford Police Department right now from the community? I think it's much better. One of the first things that Chief Smith did, and he can talk about it, but he established his knock-and-talks, where he and the command staff on a Thursday would then take, pick an area and then just go knocking on the doors to let the residents know that they were there and to introduce themselves. Since then, he's also had tea with, sweet tea with the chief. He's had coffee with the chief. He's had a number of initiatives to really get out into the community so that the community can feel several, a level of trust and respect within the Sanford Police Department. Mm-hmm. Chief Smith, what were your first impressions of Sanford? Interesting. <laughs> I say that coming from a, uh, a community that was a little larger, uh, equally as diverse. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was very interesting my first, uh, I would say, couple of months here. What was it that made you think, this is a place I can make a difference? Because you, you would have been reading the headlines about Sanford. You, you'd known the backstory. So what was it that made you think, this is where I want to go, this, this is where I'm going to be chief of police and, and try and turn things around? Well, shockingly, I got an, uh, an email from the chief at that time in Lakeland, uh, Florida, who said, uh, you know, Cecil, this may be a good opportunity for you. I know you're looking to become a chief somewhere. She was my chief up in Elgin before she came to Florida. And uh, essentially, I put my name in, did some research, and uh, by the grace of God, uh, I ended up coming in. Mm-hmm. Did you have second thoughts at any point? 
Uh, Well, I can tell you, my wife had many second thoughts and my kids and many of my friends, you know, had the uh, the impression that uh, are you sure this is something that you truly want to go and venture into? And I think uh, growing up in an agency that was completely community oriented kind of prepared me for uh, looking at issues with broad in a broad scope and then having the ability to narrow down for the facts of things we wanted to get done. Mm -hmm. When you started in the job, what stood out for you as the biggest challenges facing the police department? Well, uh, trust. I think that there had been a great deal of mistrust that was uh, developed within the department as well as externally, Uh, the lack of communications with the people in the community, Uh, in some cases the lack of communications within the organization itself. And then for me, uh, what was most important initially was dealing with uh, the issues internally, looking at how, as an internal factor, how we were going to fix ourselves before we have an opportunity to go into community and offer ideas and recommendations on how we uh, restore our trust. What was morale like? Because it must be difficult for a police department when the scrutiny of the world is on them and it's it's not good. They're They're saying things that I'm sure a lot of the folks in the police department probably didn't agree with and probably felt that they had a target on their back when they walked out the door with the uniform on. It was uh, <clears throat> it was very interesting when you walked in the door. You know, uh, Mr. Bonaparte kind of told me I, I would have a, a good number of officers when I came on and then realized that some of those guys had left between the time that we were having the conversations about coming on and the time that I actually came in the door. And then there was a lot of dissension within the organization itself. Uh, a lot of infighting in some ways, and I'll put it in this sense, when you have a agency of our size where you've had multiple police chiefs with multiple ideas and multiple decisions and multiple directions, there really wasn't that true leadership for someone to step in or someone to be there to say, this is the direction we're going in, uh, we're going to work together to get to this direction. And it was a, a factor that we had to sit down and, and take a step back and look at ourselves. Do you think the community saw you coming in and, and said, we want to give you a you know, a fair chance, or did you feel like there was some hostility when you got out there and, and talked to folks in the community? I think, you know what, it was mostly shock. One of the things that we found when we went door-to-door is that many of the people in the community didn't know who their police officers were. A lot of folks in the community didn't know who the police chief was. I mean, when you go to a door and you start talking to someone and they're, they're saying, the last chief I remember was... You know, Steve Harriet, and Steve Harriet had been a chief before um, Chief Tooley. Hmm. Chief Tooley was here for 12 years, and then there was a little break in between, and Bill Lee came in, and then I came in. So when people had that impression that they were looking at looking towards someone who had been gone for 15 years, um, it was kind of a, a little eye-opener. So you realized you had some work to do? We had a lot of work to do. Andrew Thomas, I want to bring you into this conversation. Tell me how the Community uh, Relations Initiative got started. A uh, Community Relations Initiative got started on the same subject we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, uh, the Trayvon Martin's uh, tragic death gave birth to uh, the community relations in the, the form that I'm working in. And that was bringing the community together because whether we were part of it or not, the community was already coming together. Uh, the community was organizing. Um, the community was you know, demanding to have a voice. 
You know, one of the things that we can do is try and work along with them in terms of giving them that opportunity to have that voice since the city of Sanford was the topic of many of the conversations. So it's usually wise if, uh, to be part of the conversations if they're going to take place anyway. Mm-hmm. So that was um, with the community um, relations, and then what would that look like? Um, how would that carry out? And it was um, a lot of listening um, in terms of what the community had to say. Um, about what was being done, what had been done. And as you probably well know, there's a lot of history in this community. Um, Not that we stand alone um, in our history um, throughout the state of Florida, probably throughout the South. But but that particular incident uh, with Trayvon um, just kind of rejuvenated a lot of the history um, that um, Sanford and the um, the African American community had gone through, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that, which um, as the stars lined up in the universe, gave them the perfect platform um, to bring those issues to light, and those issues not only with law enforcement, there was issues with housing, there was issues with the infrastructure within the city, there was issues with education and whether um, children were going to school. So it became multifold. Mm-hmm. So when you have that, yeah, you've got a need for community relations and community involvement. When I think back to um, the Travon Martin case and the immediate aftermath and kind of calls for change, I mean, the, the neighbourhood of Goldsboro springs to mind. That seemed like a lot of folks in Goldsboro were saying, you know, the, the issues you're talking about, a lot of that surfaced in Goldsboro, and yet that's not where the incident itself happened. So can you just explain quickly for our listeners why it is that Goldsboro sort of factors so strong in that conversation? Hmm. Um, Interesting, because I think um, Goldsboro did, um, after the tragic death of Trayvon, adopted Trayvon. And prior to um, Trayvon's uh, tragic death, there were incidents within the community and issues, as Chief Smith has said, within the the community and the police department Mm -hmm. and dealing with those issues. There were ongoing issues between that particular community, um, the city of Sanford, with housing issues, with developmental issues, and so forth. Those issues existed. When you have that major incident and then you realize that not only is this a local, a state, but a national and an international incident, excellent opportunity to call attention to what the community felt was a series and longstanding injustices within the Goldsboro community. And as many of the the medias when they came in, as you probably realize, many of them took the tour, spent time in Goldsboro. And that's what they were concentrating on. Uh, in terms of, if, if you will, the lack of development in Goldsboro, the high unemployment rate in Goldsboro, the infrastructure in Goldsboro. So those became equally, I think, reportable as the situation that was um, uh, ongoing with regards to Trayvon, the arrest, and, and the trial mm-hmm. became also, as I can recall, many of the, the intros to the uh, television clips was down historical Goldsboro Boulevard. And, you know, you could have easily could have taken that and done, you know, First Street. Uh, there was many other neighborhoods that could have been, but it concentrated and focused on Goldsboro. Mm-hmm. So that raised that issue multiple times in terms of here's a situation in the city of Sanford. I'll also say that just prior to that, we had had the incident with homelessness. 
and it was um, 60 Minutes that had done a special uh, on the Hard Times Generation, although it was throughout Central Florida that they talked about the uh, Hard Times Generation. That filming and clipping took place in Sanford. Mm-hmm. So it was a continuation of, if you will, kind of the, um, the downside of the, the, the ills within um, Sanford. We'll continue the conversation with Sanford Director of Community Relations and Neighbourhood Engagement, Andrew Thomas, Police Chief Cecil Smith and City Manager Norton Bonaparte after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. We're speaking with Sanford City Manager Norton Bonaparte, Community Relations and Neighbourhood Engagement Director Andrew Thomas and Police Chief Cecil Smith about the relationship between police and residents of Sanford in the 10 years since the killing of teenager Trayvon Martin. Before we head back to that conversation, here's what some of the city's black residents told us about how they view the police now. I believe that relationship has taken baby steps and over time it has gotten better but still not where we want to be, so it still needs to be worked on daily. CISA did a lot of uh, training of his men, sensitivity training, neighborhood trainings, because I'm telling you, all the policemen that we've had in Goldsboro that's been over Goldsboro, that you know, walk the beat in Goldsboro or ride a bicycle in Goldsboro, I would give them a, a A. There have been some improvement under the new leadership of the police department, but they still have a lot of work to do. Uh, there still is not 100% trust in law enforcement uh, like it should be among the black community because of treatment that they have received in the past. And that was Pasha Baker with the Goldsboro Westside Community Historical Association, historian and activist Francis Oliver and Turner Clayton Jr., former president of the Seminole County chapter of the NAACP. I asked Police Chief Cecil Smith what he thinks has worked well and what still needs work in the nearly nine years since he's been in Sanford. For us, um, as Mr. Bonaparte said, for me and our group was to get out in the community and spend more time in the community, you know, re-engaging, having conversations, uh, listening to what the issues and concerns that needed to be addressed, uh, working with the community so the community understood that whatever actions we were taking were uh, kind of mutual is that uh, in order for us to make the community better, we would have to work together to do that. I think, you know, one of the things that was important for us as well is we went out and bought a couple of trailers. So we bought activities trailers so that our officers can actively get out of the cars and spend time in the community. What does that do? It starts to build that trust. It starts to open up those doors of communications where before they weren't done. Uh, We've... uh, (laughs) Work with the schools, with Young Men's Excellence Program through Seminole High Schools, uh, being mentors with regards to that program as well. And this may sound as though it's geared toward the children, and a lot of it is, because if we can change the mind of a child going forward, they will always have that image of the police officers or police department being better and doing better. Uh, it, it'll take a little more to change the mindset of some of the adults, as Andrew kind of alluded to, it's because of some of the things that may have been there in the past. But it's been our goal to try to uh, work, you know, in conjunction with the community to make sure that we have that. I'll give you one more example real quick. Uh, Mr. I, I met with Mr. Bonaparte about two years ago and asked about how can we start a police cadet program. Because one of the things that we constantly heard was 
we don't have people who look like us, who talk like us, who understand us. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we had to drill down and figure out what does us mean. So we have hired officers from within the city who represent the city, who understand the city, who grew up in this city. So it creates that bond. So now you have that buy-in when you have people who are working in the community, who came from the community, who understands the community. Do you have a goal of, like, when you think about the makeup of the police department, do you have some goals as to how many officers you'd like to see coming from within the sort of Sanford area? Well, you know, it would be great to just hire all of them from the Sanford area, but uh, unfortunately, every other agency around here, we're all competing for police officers. But if I can get two, three, four, six out of every hiring who's from this community, that'll be that does great for us. It it kind of it lets people in the community understand is that we're just not talking about it. We're not just giving you the face show or anything. We're actually showing you that we're actively engaging and doing these things to try to make the community and build trust. Was there some pushback from some of the officers when you said, okay, we we need you to get out and and kind of walk the streets and spend a bit of your day talking to the residents? Well, you asked me about when I first got here. And uh, the first meeting that I had with some of my guys, they told me I was crazy because I wanted to walk around in Goldsboro. And I'm like, listen, guys, I'm from the west side of Chicago. Goldsboro ain't got nothing, absolutely nothing on it. So if you're afraid to go out and do this job, then you don't need to be here doing this job. You can't be afraid of the community that you're saying that you're supposed to go out and protect and serve. So uh, on a rainy Thursday afternoon, <laughs> myself, the city manager, the mayor, and a bunch of commissioners, we our first walk, it rained that it day, rained and like we crazy. got into the community and walked in the rain. Mm -hmm. And presently, our officers are now, they're geared toward uh, doing a, a great deal of community research and outreach. They're required to get out of their vehicles during the course of the day, spend some time talking to people in the community, spend some time you know, interacting with the kids in the community as much as possible. Norson, when you think about how the police department kind of functions within the city is it sometimes like is a police officer the first kind of interaction somebody might have with the city of sanford uh, like uh, uh, do you see them kind of as ambassadors for the city more than just law enforcement absolutely they are the ones that people call when they need some assistance whether it's because there's a medical issue whether it's because there's an issue that they just want to bring to the police department's attention so yes our officers and i appreciate chief smith's leadership in making the point that we are here to serve and to be part of the community and to work with the residents and be part of the residents to your point there it sounds like it wasn't always that way and in fact i remember some of the uh, the demonstrations or the gatherings that were during the first weeks of the trayvon martin case the um, Seminole County Sheriff had to come and provide oversight because the, the, the people organizing the protest said, we, we, don't, we don't want the police here. There was some misunderstanding, first of all, that it was a police matter when it really was an individual that was not associated with the police department, George mm -hmm. Newman, that was the, responsible for the death of Trayvon. But the Sanford Police Department got painted as an op, in, in, incompetent because they didn't make an immediate arrest very visible. Uh, there were some demonstrations here that we felt it would be better since people were very angry at the Sanford Police Department, so we partnered with the Sheriff's Office, and the law enforcement presence that people saw were those from the Seminole County Sheriff's Office rather than the Sanford Police Department. 
the Sanford Police Department was still involved, and they were still there, not in their blue uniforms, but the presence that people saw was of the Seminole County Sheriff's Office because at that time there was a lot of animosity towards the Sanford Police mm. Department. And when you think about where people turn to first for help, would you say that's changed? Like sort of 10 years ago they may have been reluctant to call the Sanford Police, now they're not? I think under Chief Smith's leadership he's made it very clear that the Sanford Police Department is here to help. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think there is less reluctance on the part of people to call the Sanford Police Department when they need some assistance. Chief Smith, I, I wanted to ask you about your involvement with the Florida Police Chiefs Association Subcommittee on Accountability and Societal Change, mm-hmm. um, established after the death of George Floyd to develop strategies to strengthen police community relations. When you look outside of Sanford, uh, how would you characterize police community relations in general? Do you think they're good as there's kind of work to be done there on a broader level when you look beyond the boundaries of the city? You know, it, it, it was a great opportunity to work with uh, other police chiefs from across the, uh, the state and other stakeholders from across the state as well. And the great part about that is we all brought our own different perspectives as to what our agencies were doing and how our agencies needed to improve. Uh, there were There was a great deal of exchange about what I'm doing, what uh, the other chiefs were doing in each of those cities. And the, the outcome of this was we were able to put together some recommendations for other law enforcement agencies throughout the state, looking at how we were doing things. And then I say we, I'm talking about all seven of the eight of the chiefs that were there, how we were doing things and able to uh, come up with recommendations for others throughout the state. Uh, it's kind of difficult to talk about what's happening in another agency. Uh, we all kind of hope that we all abide by whatever our state laws, federal laws, and our city ordinances are. Um, you will find that there are some non-progressive agencies, some who are still fighting um, you know, progression and moving forward, and then you'll find some agencies that are just, uh, you know, they they are 100 miles an hour ahead of some of the other ones. But we we had a great opportunity to share, to talk about the things that were happening, and, again, to come up with uh, a number of changes and programs and plans. Does it seem to you that when people think about the Sanford Police Department, they think about the work that you've done, and, and it has a different reputation from other agencies? Like, do people know that this is an agency where you're going to, you know, approach things slightly differently as a police officer than you may... in in another city absolutely again when i said i came from uh, the city of elgin we we were a very progressive community oriented community policing agency and so coming here and changing the mindset of the people who were here was extremely important for us um i I kind of uh, put the adage in is that 80 percent of my agency right now has eight to ten years on most of those officers will come on uh, with me. And so that turnaround means that they understand my mission, my policies, my programs, and my vision to go out and be the best that they possibly can be, to be engaged in the community as much as they possibly can be. So when I see some of my brother and sister agencies, it's not unusual, even I think just this morning we got an email from Fort Lauderdale asking about some of our programmings that we do here. So we receive information probably weekly about different things that we've done that other agencies are mimicking. Mm -hmm. 
Andrew Thomas, when you think about um, kind of relations between police and the community or even just the city and, and residents 10 years ago versus now, what do you think the biggest change has been? I think the biggest change has been, one, is this more involvement, interaction between the community at large um, and with, with, um, with the police department. And again, going back to some of the things that Mr. Bonaparte and Chief uh, Smith has said, over the um, past eight years now, it'll, it'll, nine. nine coming up, <laughs> the uh, initiatives uh, that he has brought to the police department has been well received within the community. What I will also add to that is that um, those initiatives was brought in in collaboration with the community. So he didn't come in to fix the community. He came in to work with the community. So he came alongside the community. Now, are there still challenges in the areas we need to work on? Absolutely. But if you look at some of the things that has taken place, as he mentioned, the um, his walk, knock, and talk concept. I mean, it couldn't have been a worse day to do that. <laughs> and, with all, and with all of it, he said, no, you press on and press forward. And I think that was a turning point because I'm sure many of those people in the community did not expect to see them on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, that the fact that they were still walking that neighborhood, knocking on doors and talking with people, and that hasn't stopped. So that continues. So people are very comfortable now. And, in fact, it probably that keeps them working quite a bit is people mm-hmm. want to talk to the chief. And they come in, no, I need to see the chief. I need to talk to the chief. Because I think that is, I think, reflective of the kind of relationship they feel they have with the chief, that he is the community's, he's a people's chief. So he has that. I mean, as we've gone through um, uh, a COVID pandemic and with people um, in food and shortage and distribution and so forth, number one, volunteers out in the community doing food distribution, the police department, and the chief is out there with his staff and doing it. We've participated in things like with Habitat. We've built homes for residents in the community. And guess who's out there? <laughs> Hanging drywall. <laughs> People come in and see, there's a chief there that's working on building it. Think of what that says to a resident of that home. It says, the chief of police worked on building my home. So those types of initiatives that he has been involved with. The working with, he said, the young men of excellence and my brother's keeper and working with our young people and doing police community relations workshops and scenarios and putting the, uh, the, uh, our young people in the position of law enforcement and how would you deal with a, a given situation. That's not only brought out our young people. Parents have come out to see that. The neighborhoods have come out. There. Just residents in the neighborhood wanting to know what's going on, and that crowd continues to grow. And out. When you have a meeting that we have district meetings, we actually see the chief hosts district meetings throughout the city. He invites the other departments to his meetings to talk about. Those meetings are packed. So if that gives you an example of the kinds of things that, uh, that he's doing within the de- uh, department, volunteers. I mean, we have the um, uh, My Brother's Keeper initiative. He has a staff person that's liaison to the My Brother's Keeper initiative that works with us. So we have the city, we have the police department, we have the school district that works with uh, on that initiative. So, you know, I think that just looking at it, and the other one I will just mention is that with what we call the CNI, Choice Neighborhood Initiatives, concentrated strictly on that Goldsboro community. And our challenge there was how do you transform the Goldsboro community, given its history, given what it's gone through, and given the challenges that we collectively as city uh, had in working with them? There was a... A separate committee 
that was charged with police community relations. That committee met for at least two years, Mm -hmm. long after Mm -hmm. the actual um, uh, plan was submitted to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The community continued to work on building that relationship between the community and the police department. And I think that's still, I mean, they, although it's not officially charged, they still meet and talk about issues, challenges, and concerns. So that's, that's how I think how the community sees it. I think it's a very positive uh, relationship. If you think about the last 10 years, Andrew, do you think Sanford is a better community now for the soul-searching that happened in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin case? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at participation and, um, and just in general and uh, in local government. Um, one is the educational piece that came about. I'm going to talk about the Citizens Academy. That was one of the initiatives uh, that Mr. Bonaparte brought on to educate uh, this community, uh, just on the police department, but the overall workings of city government. That has just steadily grown, and it it fuels volunteers on various committees, and they come in, and you have informed volunteers participating as partners in local government. So I think that's different. You would not have seen that 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest difference, if, if I could kind of summarize that, I think we have worked hard and accomplished to a degree this cross-the-table adversariness to a side-by-side collaboration and partnership. You see, it's all at the table, but the table doesn't divide us as much as it did in the past. And that people are very comfortable in coming in and, um, and talking about what can we do. And we're willing to, I mean, the, the, the whole idea behind the Race, Equity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee came from the community in terms of how do we go. The request was originally to paint Black Lives Matter on historical Goldsboro Boulevard. But you had a small group that wanted to do that that did not necessarily represent that community. Our approach to that was not saying it's a bad idea, but let's talk. You know, you have residents in that community. You want to visit, you know, where they live and you want to do something for them. Wouldn't it be nice to touch bases and talk? Hmm. Out of those conversations came, yeah, there's a need to do something. And, and whatever it is we do, let's do it together. And the other one is, do we want to do a one and done? If we're talking about Black Lives Matter, and that's a theme that we need to constantly be moving forward or promoting that agenda, then how do we do that? Because if you do it and you paint it, wash away, and if you do it in the community that's already convinced that Black Lives Matter, who have you convinced and who have you converted? If you want to make a bigger splash, then take it to a bigger venue. And then he said, so how do you do that? And he says, then let's come together collectively, that we all share part in coming out with a product that's going to carry and, and, and represent Sanford in the way that we want it to be represented. That's different. So there's a lot of different initiatives that's taking place and behaviors. Right. So, so rather than the, the sign painted on the road, what was the, what was the outcome of that? What, what did the community want? Well, and that's what the committee that's what they said. Right. We want something that's going to be more lasting. We want to look at something that not only looks at, you know, if black lives matter, and then you, you also segue into all lives matters, and let's take a look at where are those uh, embedded injustices within our system, um, those embedded injustices that deals with housing, that deals with education, employment, because those are the issues that we're dealing with, and those are across the board. If that's an injustice for whomever, 
we want to identify it and do what we can to eliminate it. So that's what came out of it. That committee was the, is the byproduct of that original request. I want to give you the last word. Um, Chief Smith, what's next for the Sanford Police Department? Where do you want to see this department go or grow next? You know, the, the, the big part for us is to actively engage, continue the, the, to grow, uh, continue to uh, actively be a part of the, um, what's taking place in the community, um, bringing on new people who have new visions, with uh, assisting us in getting to our next level, whatever that next level is, uh, and making sure that we are able as a community, community being police and civilian, that we, we have that understanding that we're all human, that we all want to live in harmony, and that you give us the opportunity to uh, ensure the peace and tranquility that you have in society today and to work with us to make sure that that continues. Well, Cecil Smith is the Chief of Police in the City of Sanford. Cecil, thank you so much. Thank you. Also been speaking to Andrew Thomas, Community Relations and Neighbourhood Engagement Director. Andrew, thank you as well. You're welcome. Thank you. And Norton Bonaparte, Sanford City Manager, thank you as well. Thank you, Ben. Still to come on Intersection, Trayvon Martin's death raised questions about Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground law, even though it wasn't used in the trial of George Zimmerman. We'll have that conversation when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The death of black teenager Trayvon Martin, fatally shot during a scuffle with Neighbourhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman in Sanford, raised questions about Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground law. To help us understand more about how the law is used and where a debate on it sits now, 10 years on, WMFE's Brendan Burns spoke with Stetson University College of Law professor Judith Scully. She began by explaining how the law was not used in Zimmerman's murder trial. Stand Your Ground was not used in the Trayvon Martin case because um, it wasn't really necessary to do so. Um, The lawyers there indicated that they believed, and um, George Zimmerman believed, that he just had the right to use deadly force because he was um, clearly being threatened, right? We We don't need to resort to stand your ground when you're involved in an altercation where Um, There is a gun, which was George Zimmerman's gun, not Trayvon Martin's, but George Zimmerman's, um, where there is a gun and you are directly involved in an altercation that is fully um, full blown. Mm -hmm. So in in what case would he need to use stay on your ground? And this is all hypothetical at this point. Like what what would be that the the different factor in that altercation? So. Stand your ground is also used to prevent prosecution, right? That's literally what our stand your ground rule in Florida allows. It allows for you to avoid even being charged if you can um, provide the facts that indicate that you were in a lawful place, right, at that time, um, at the time of the altercation, that you reasonably believe that you were threatened with deadly force and you use the amount of force that was necessary, Um, like fighting deadly force with deadly force, right? So it is actually, when we say stand your ground rule in Florida, we're talking about the ability to um, not just argue this issue at trial, but to avoid trial altogether, right? So when we talk about stand your ground, there's generally um, the ability of the um, accused who has done the shooting to avoid prosecution altogether. I should not be in court is basically the argument that 
stand your ground allows for in, in the state of Florida. I should not be in court actually even defending myself because the law says that I can stand my ground when I have a reasonable belief that I am threatened with deadly force. Um, George Zimmerman did not have that type of a hearing. He was obviously going to trial at that point as well. And so he used the traditional concepts of um, self-defense that are embodied in the Florida statute, Mm -hmm. which include a reasonable belief as well. The necessity to use force Mm -hmm. um, would be the second major component. And so the defense team for him just simply focused on those two issues. Mm -hmm. And what's controversial about that is what is a reasonable belief that someone is threatening you, right? Who decides what reasonable is? And part of the problem in the United States and in Florida in particular as well, is that reasonable beliefs are determined by um, our experiences and by our perceptions, right? As average citizens, right? And this, this is a question of fact, what is reasonable? And so many people will take into consideration the fact that um, the, the other person in the altercation was a Black individual. And we have all of these stereotypes and um, all of these biases, right, against Black men in particular, but fa- Black people in general, right? And um, there's a fear in the United States, unfortunately, that many people embrace. And so when they think about an altercation with a Black person, um, their minds go to the fact that, oh, that must be really threatening. You mu- he must have been really scared. It would have been reasonable for him to use deadly force because, you know, um, the person who's thinking about this is saying, if I were in that situation, I might be scared too, right? And so race plays a role in determining what reasonable fear is. And this is a result of not just individual bias, but media bias as well. We have been exposed to so many decades of pictures of Black men in prison jumpsuits and Black men um, being charged with violent crimes and headlines that talk about violence in the Black community, that many individuals automatically begin to match up violence, fear, and Black people together. And so for many individuals, thinking about what constitutes reasonable fear, um, race is involved in that, unfortunately. I want to talk about the racial implications of this law in a minute, but I want to go back to something you said. So, so stand your ground is used as a way to prevent something from going to court. I feel like that could be quite problematic as who is making that decision. It's not a jury of peers, right? It, it is one particular judge or prosecutor that gets to make that decision. Be a police officer. We had a case here in Pinellas County in the Clearwater area where um, the sheriff actually decided not to charge an individual Um, with a homicide crime after a shooting because the sheriff believes that that individual was justified under our stand your ground law. And the sheriff actually said, if I charge him, I may be um, subject to some sort of liability. The law basically says that we should not be charging them if there is um, reasonable grounds to believe that they would be successful on a standard ground charge. So in that, individ- in that individual instance, we had a sheriff making the decision. Luckily, that sheriff's decision was then sent to the prosecutor's office, and then the prosecutor made a decision in that case and chose to prosecute. But 
um, it could have turned out that the prosecutor in that case agreed with the sheriff as well. It just so happened it didn't happen in that case. And the case I'm referring to is the Marquise McLaughlin case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that seems like it's extremely problematic when it comes to carrying out justice, is it not? Oh, it absolutely is. Like you said, it allows the power of making a decision about what constitutes a justifiable killing. It lays that responsibility on the hands of one individual. It may be one sheriff, one police officer, one prosecutor, right? Um, But yes, it is problematic. It means that the jury has been removed from the possibility of hearing the case or the judge has been removed. Either, you know, the court, the legal proceeding has been removed altogether. We just decide this on the spot and we're done. Was that the reason why it took so long for Zimmerman to be arrested? Were can you recall them using some sort of argument like that? Um, I don't recall the argument exactly that was made by the um, the police officers in that instance. But what I do recall is that it was community demand that created a focus and a spotlight on that case, which then led to Zimmerman actually being charged. There was definitely a delay. Um, in terms of charging Zimmerman, and there was an outcry from the from the the state, really from um, community activists and concerned citizens that said, "How can this man not be charged?" Right? We we as the people of this state need to have all of the facts revealed and have an opportunity to weigh in on whether or not this was actually self defense. In an essay penned by Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon. Martin, she writes, quote, I can't help but wonder if the stand your ground laws were created with the legal killing of black people, especially men in mind, end quote. Um, Studies have shown racial inequalities in the application of stand your ground. Is Sabrina Fulton justified in writing what she said there? I mean, Sabrina Fulton, I'm sure, is saying what she feels, and she's definitely entitled to her opinion. But I can tell you what we do know um, about um, the law in general is that um, individuals who are victimized, the the victims of these killings who are Black, um, generally um, the perpetrators of those crimes are successful in using the standard ground law. When the victims are white, they're not as successful in using the standard ground laws, right? We do see that in the statistics. And unfortunately, we see that in the criminal legal system in general. When we look at who gets the death penalty, right, again, an individual who kills a white person is more likely to get the death penalty than an individual who kills a black person. And so we have this correlation, unfortunately, in our legal system where there is, appears to be much more empathy towards white victims than towards black victims. And so um, if you are um, killing a black person, you are less likely, right, Um, to be found um, fully responsible for your actions. And so to the extent that Sabrina Fulton is responding to the fact that her child, a young Black boy, a 17-year-old Black boy, was killed by somebody who um, successfully um, used a self-defense law, um, I think her opinion in that matter may be reflecting the reality of what we know statistically, right, about um, the lack of protection around the loss of Black life. Are these racial injustices related specifically to the Stand Your Ground law itself, or are they a product of a larger inequity within our judicial system? 
Right. So stand your ground is just one example of racial inequities in our legal system, right? As I just stated, um, we see these racial inequities in the application of the death penalty as well, right? Um, we also know that um, when we are looking at statistics that um, Black men and Black women as well are also more likely to be arrested once arrested, more likely to be charged once charged, more likely to be charged more severely once charged severely, more likely to be sentenced, and once sentenced, more likely to be sentenced severely, right? This is what the stats indicate to us. Um, and so, yes, there are issues related to race here, um, racial inequities that are not addressed by our legal system. We see the statistics and um, we're sometimes just not responding to them. In many instances, we do respond to them. For example, when I think about what has happened in the state of Florida around juvenile criminal law, um, we were definitely seeing the fact that there are more African-American kids who are being transferred into the adult system um, than white kids. And once that was recognized, we um, saw a lot of policies and um, a lot of laws kind of changing in order to uh, make sure that the scales were more balanced, that there wasn't just a prosecution of, of Black children as adults um, as we had in the past. So sometimes when we recognize racial injustices, um, the legal system does respond. Sometimes it does not. And in the stand your ground instance, I would have to say that we have not yet responded to these racial inequities. Mm -hmm. There were attempts to respond to those racial inequities, right? There was a task force that was designated by the governor in, in the wake of, of um, the Zimmerman trial and the Trayvon Martin killing, but really nothing came out of it. I mean, can, can you go back to that time and, and, and kind of reflect on the disappointment in, in these things not changing and, you know, the efforts to kind of change some of these inequalities? Right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in order for legislation to pass, you have to have the political will of a majority of the legislators behind it. And so um, what that means when the law doesn't pass is that we just simply don't have enough people who view this as a problem. Um, so that's an educational issue, right? We need for um, the legislators to take into consideration all of the um, facts that we are talking about here when, they're, um, when they are introducing new laws. And um, we have to build the political power to influence those decisions. Right now, um, we just aren't in that position, right? The a lot of the individuals who support Stand Your Ground are individuals who are currently occupying um, legislative seats. And so until that, that balance, that shift of, of power occurs, um, we will not be successful in changing the law. And finally, I mean, you've, you've talked about these calls to change it. You're going to have to change the minds of lawmakers. But I mean, are, are you optimistic that, that there could be changes to not only Florida Stand Your Ground laws, but also some of these other uh, self-defense laws that, that do kind of promote this injustice and inequality in our criminal justice system? Can there be change in the near future? So the one thing that's inevitable in life is change, right? And I think that that is true particularly when we are looking at um, the legislative system. Um, the legislative um, policies that come out of our governing bodies are a direct result of the balance of power in that particular moment in time, 
Right now, we are in a moment in time that is dominated by individuals who support Stand Your Ground. Yes, of course, I have hope, optimism, and faith that this will not always be the political landscape that we find ourselves in. Um, I believe that there will be other individuals who will step up, who recognize um, anti-racism and um, recognize racial inequality as issues that need to be addressed through legislation. When they are elected and the balance of our um, legislature shifts, so will the law, right? That, that is guaranteed to occur, right? It is just a natural process, right, of the legis legislative design, right? We change elected officials every four years. The question I think that is really begging to be answered is will the people of the state of Florida um, promote legislators who want to see a change in standard ground? That's the bigger question. And, will and we get organized to do so. Looking at some of these cases that have been highlighting this racial inequality, I'm thinking of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, um, and, and seeing that there is actually accountability um, for some of the people that have you know, committed these unjust acts. Does that give you a little more optimism in the future that these changes may happen sooner rather than later? So my optimism lies in the heart of the community, right? When I see people organizing, when I see a collective of individuals raising up voices in dissent to what is happening, that's where my hope lies. And when you mentioned George Floyd, um, what happened in the George Floyd case where we had the video of the police officer um, sitting on George Floyd's neck for over um, nine minutes, right? And that went viral, not just in the United States, but across the world. What we saw was a concerted effort of individuals who were outraged about the fact that this police officer did this was really unjustifiable killing, right? Was the response of not just the United States, but the world. We saw protests in several different countries all across the world, standing in solidarity with the Black community um, in the United States saying, yes, the police officer needs to be held accountable. So um, anytime I see mass movement of individuals standing up and saying to the government, this policy is unacceptable, therein lies hope. There's no doubt about it. And that was Stetson University College of Law Professor Judith Scully speaking with WMFE's Brendan Byrne about the Zimmerman trial and Florida's Stand Your Ground law. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Allegra Montesano. Find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.